It is great to be here. I think uh, Lyle mentioned earlier, my name's Brad Tubising. I'm the RUF campus minister at University of Alabama in Huntsville. And Alex obviously is away this morning, and uh, he asked me to come preach this morning. And Alex has been a great friend of mine um, ever since we've been in Huntsville. I moved to, I guess, about a year or so before he did. Um, but he and I have been great friends, and he's just been a great support to me in ministry as, as well as just a great personal friend. So it, it's an honor to be here with you all. And uh, even though I don't get here very much, I know a lot about what's going on in the church through Alex and pray for you all often and just absolutely am thrilled to, um, whenever I hear, whenever Alex and I talk and hear how things are going here, it's great. But even just to be here with you and to worship with you is, is awesome. So thank you for, for giving me that privilege this morning. Um, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to go ahead and open to uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 18. Um, go ahead and turn there. Going to be looking at a parable this morning, and I've been doing this with my students this semester. And so I thought, you know, there was one parable that I really liked, and I felt, you know, I think I'd like to kind of talk about that parable with you all today. And sitting there thinking, well, none of my students, I don't think, will be here. And then I get here and I see Laura over there, and I go, oh, she's she's gonna be like, I've heard this. I guess I'll take a nap this morning. Brad Brad talked about this with us just a month or so ago. So apologies to Laura, but everyone else, it's it's a great passage, so I'm really excited to look at it uh, for the second time in, I guess, about a month or so for me. I absolutely love this passage, so just felt like it'd be a good one for us to look at. But as you're turning there, um, just a little bit of introduction on this uh, passage. Uh, my wife, uh, basically everyone in my family uh, are graduates of the University of Missouri-Columbia, and at Mizzou, I've been there many times, and Caroline and I dated through college, um, so I would go there often and see this place, but in the middle of the campus in Mizzou, they have a thing called Speaker Circle. Uh, and it's really a neat concept where anyone can come and you know, basically speak their mind to just a public, just large audience. Uh, and it's in a very strategic location, kind of right in the middle of campus. And um, you know, I'm sure hundreds of people pass by there every day. And I'm sure you've heard of these kind of things. I think uh, it's Hyde Park in London, I think is the park where they have kind of a similar thing where I think on one morning a week people come and kind of have their soapboxes, literally, and stand on soapboxes and speak and gather audiences. But I can remember as Caroline and I dated through college, you know, we'd be on the phone. I, I was at another school uh, in another state, but we'd talk on the phone at night, and she'd say things like, oh, you wouldn't believe who was at speaker circle today, and you wouldn't believe some of the things that this person was, you know, campaigning for, was sharing, and it was it was crazy, but it was really interesting. There was this big crowd kind of watching, and I, I was always kind of jealous my school didn't have anything like that and I thought it was kind of a neat edgy kind of thing that the campus had that at this environment that had that much going on and um, you know you'd have everything from I know at UAH we've had these kind of fundamentalist preachers before saying if because you're a student at a secular university you're going to hell and you know you'd have everything from those people on one side to the other side you know people protesting you know the US military actions currently or something like that but as I was thinking about it the question occurred to me, why do these places exist? Why have we created these kind of places? You know, like I said, they're at college campuses, at parks, all over, uh, all over the place. Well, I think the reason why is because they satisfy a fundamental need in, in the human heart. They satisfy our need to justify ourselves, our need to prove that, hey, I'm worth something. I matter. My life has value and, and I'm important. And I mean, think about it. What better way to prove, hey, I matter and I'm worth something than to stand up 
in a public area where nobody has any reason to listen to you, but to hold captive an audience for whether it's 10 minutes or two hours and perfect strangers to stop and listen to you and say, hey, what you have to say is important. I want to hear you out. I mean, if you can do that, you can go home with your head held high and feel pretty good about yourself. You know, the cause I was speaking about or the belief that I was sharing with these people or just this thing that I'm really motivated about. People listen to me share about it. I must be important or what I believe in must be really important. And you can go home and kind of pat yourself on the back, if you will. So, I, like I said, I think these places fill a very just central human need to feel justified. And I think every human being has that need within themselves. So to, today I want us to look at a parable that Jesus tells that is really about this same need when it boils down to it. Jesus tells us about two men who went about seeking to fill this need to feel justified. But they went about it in very different ways. And I believe these two men represent really the only two options we have when we really boil it down to, to the heart of the matter. Really the only two options we have of filling our need to feel justified. And it's a story that really confronts us with that reality. It makes us ask ourselves, how am I justifying myself? If I've never thought about that, you know, how do I want to justify myself? But really it's something, even if we don't know it, we probably ask ourselves that very often. Do I matter? And how do I know that? How does my life show that I, that I have value? We're all trying to prove that to ourselves somehow. So I want us to think about that today. And I want us to think about that as, as we consider this story. What do you look to for justification? Think about that as, as we read this passage now. And I invite you to follow along with me. Again, this is the 18th chapter of Luke's gospel, and we're going to read verse 9, excuse me, verse 9 through 14. Follow along with me. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word, that it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is given, that we might know truth, that we might know our Creator better. And so, Lord, we ask that you would come, be with us this morning, that you would guide my words, and I would accurately teach what this text is saying. And Lord, that your spirit would apply the message to each heart here, that in every heart, whether they know you as their Savior or not, that you would speak to each heart and that you would show us how this message needs to grip our lives, how it needs to change us. And Lord, we we know that we will be convicted, Lord. We pray that we would also be convicted and encouraged by your spirit, Lord, that we would have a fuller grasp of how just big and wonderful the gospel is. 
Lord, we pray that in all this you would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, in this picture, Jesus paints a picture of two very different men, two people who have a very different understanding of themselves and their standing before God. So let's let's look at the first man in this parable first and, and look at what's going on in this story in his life. If you've grown up going to church or even if, you know, maybe this is your first time being in church this morning and um, regardless, you've probably heard of the term Pharisees. They're more than just characters in the Bible in our culture. I mean, they're a symbol. And, and even in people not in church know kind of a Pharisee. Yeah, that's, that's someone who are these very holy, very pious, very good people. And that's not just, you know, a myth. That's really who the Pharisees were in the Bible. They were uh, men who belonged to kind of a certain group of Judaism that had a very strict and re- very rigorous adherence to the law. And in that day, in the ancient Near East, in, in Je- Jesus' day, they were the ones that everyone else looked to as those are the really good people. Those are the, the holier-than-us people, the very pious, very admirable religious leaders. And so, you know, we could compare them to maybe a highly respected pastor in our community or, you know, maybe a very ad- a deeply admired elder in, in the community. So Jesus tells us that this Pharisee went up into the temple to pray. And so therefore we can imagine the response of everyone else who was in the temple that day, everyone else who saw him. They probably knew who he was. Oh, that's that Pharisee. He's an important man. If he's going to pray, we should listen to what he's saying. He knows God's law. He, he's a holy man. We should listen to his prayer. And from some of the clues in this text, we can probably assume he went right into the middle of the temple in a very prominent position so that he could be heard. And so we need to listen to what he said. Those present were undoubtedly listening to him. And one of the things that's most obvious about his prayer is that he said, I, five times in just these two verses. Our prayers are obviously supposed to be directed to God. They're supposed to be God-centered. But his prayer was anything but that. In fact, we could translate the verse 11 in the Greek. It, it could be translated to read, he prayed about himself. So literally, Luke is telling us this man went up there really to pray about himself. And that's exactly what he did. It was not a God-centered prayer. He wanted to tell God and everyone else listening, hey, I, I want to tell you how great of a person I am. Verse 11 tells us that. It it says, essentially, he says, God, I am better than so many people. And then he lists a bunch of these obvious sinners. And he says, thank you that I am not like them. In other words, God and everyone else listening, don't forget, I'm a really good person. That's essentially what he wanted to communicate. He lists his moral accomplishments. He says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But that's more than just, hey, I'm, I'm a good person. I mean, that's pretty incredible. You know, picture if Alex were to stand up here on a Sunday morning and he said, you know, I, I, you know, I, I go to Bible studies and I give my money away. You know, that'd be one thing. But what if he said, you know, I go to three different Bible studies a week and I give away a third of all that I get. And if you want to be secure in your standing before God, you, you really need to do the same thing. That'd be ludicrous. That'd be insane. God's word never says you have to go to X amount of Bible studies per week, or it never says you have to give away, you know, a third or a half of your money. I mean, certainly those can be good things if done with the right motivation. 
But God's word doesn't say that. So to bind that to people is wrong. And, and to somehow think, well, I'm in a better standing with God because I go beyond like this Pharisee did is crazy. The, the, God's law requires only fasting once a year on what Jews still today call the, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And it's fine to do it in other times, but in no way is it necessary. But this man gave, tithe, gave a tithe of all that he had where in the economic system of that day, uh, you were only required to, to tithe on a certain amount of things. They didn't really tithe income. They didn't have as much income, but it was material goods, those kind of things. But he ties like that, and he gives so much money away because, as I've been saying, he, he's doing this to justify himself. He's doing this to prove, God, I'm worthy. I'm worthy of your love. He thinks, God, if I can show you all the good things I'm doing, then certainly I'll feel secure in my status as yours. I will, I will know that I'm accepted by you, that I've earned that right. And I think for us, for probably many of us, yes, that struggle is there. We're trying to prove God to, to God, hey, I'm accepted by you because of my good works. But I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, we get that. We get the gospel. No, I'm saved by grace. Where this strikes us, where we are like that Pharisee, is because we think, well, yes, I've been accepted by grace, but in order to keep his grace, I've got to keep doing these things. I've got to keep my act together. And if I don't, then I need to worry. Maybe God will get frustrated and cast me off if I don't keep doing these things. Yes, I know I've received it by grace, but to keep it, i got to keep my act together. And that's just wrong. So if we are tempted to go, well, I don't struggle with that. I know I'm saved by, the, by grace. I'm nothing like that Pharisee. You know, maybe we need to think a little harder and realize for us it might just mean we think we have to do something to keep his love. Or it might not even be to keep our salvation, but it might be, God, I've got a big day tomorrow. I've got some really big things on my plate that I'm worried about. If I read my Bible this morning, though, I know you'll bless me. Or if I go to church this week and if those, those sins that I've been really struggling with, if I find victory over them and really do well over the next several days, and I know you'll bless this thing that's looming on my calendar that I'm really anxious about. And so we think, God, I'll somehow earn more of your favor if I do well. And if I don't do well, if I forget to read my Bible, if you know those sins I've been struggling with really just get at me and I fail, well, then I need to be worried. That's really the same struggle that this Pharisee has looking to ourselves rather than trusting in God's grace. I'm sure probably many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's a great movie. Uh, it's a movie about a group of men from the Army's 2nd Ranger Battalion. And uh, it's about how the Army learns that their three brothers are all killed within a few days in different uh, theaters in World War II fighting. And the brother of one of them, Private James Ryan, uh, is still fighting in Normandy. So the army learns this soldier's brothers have been killed. We've got to send him back. We've got to give this family some consolation. They've paid a huge sacrifice for this nation, and we've got to save them. So the army sends out this small group of men from the 2nd Ranger Battalion to find Private James Ryan and send him back home. They go on this, this very risky mission behind enemy lines soon after the, the D-Day invasion to, to find Private Ryan. And that's what the movie's about, is their mission. Well, there's a scene at the end of the movie, and it fast-forwards to a much older James Ryan. It's been over 50 years since these men of the 2nd Ranger Battalion embarked on this deadly mission to save him. 
And the scene opens with this now elderly Ryan walking through a Normandy graveyard where many of the men who died on D-Day are now buried. And as he walks through the graveyard with his family now close at hand, he sees, uh, he's, he's looking for something, and he finds this one grave, and he starts to kind of break away from the rest of his family. And just as if nothing else in the world matters, he sees that grave, and he's locked in, and his eyes get big, and he, he rushes up to it and starts to move kind of frantically because he knows whose grave this is. And as he starts to distance himself and walks towards this grave and can indeed read whose grave it is, he begins to become overcome with emotion. And he, he sinks down as he gets to the grave and reads the writing in fine print. And we see Captain John Miller on the gravestone. And we remember, all of a sudden we flash back, we remember this scene just not too long before in the movie. Captain John Miller was the leader of the 2nd Ranger Battalion that went to save Ryan, to find him and send him home. And we remember this scene as some of Miller's men have all died in this mission, and now Miller has been wounded and has a mortal wound, is laying there dying on the battlefield. And, and Private Ryan comes up to him and looks at him in the eye. And these words undoubtedly come back to Ryan. He remembers Miller's dying words where he simply says in his last breath, earn this. This is all Ryan can think about is these words are echoing in his head as he now, 50-some years later, is staring at Miller's grave. And his wife kind of comes from the rest of the family as they're wondering, what is he doing? And they come forward, and she comes and kind of puts her arm on, on, on Ryan's shoulder. Honey, is everything okay? And with tears now streaming down his face, he looks at her, and with the only words he can muster, he says, tell me I have led a good life. Tell me I've been a good man. You see what's underlying his question. He's received an incredible gift. His life was saved while Captain Miller's and these other men of this battalion lost theirs for his. And we see in Ryan this deep desire to feel as if he has somehow earned this, he's somehow deserved this, that he's somehow justified their cost for his life the same thing in this Pharisee. He has to know, God, somehow, surely I've done something to deserve eternal life, right? He feels as if he has to have earned this somehow. And we see the same thing in ourselves. Even if we know, yes, it was given to me as a gift. I never could have done anything to first receive it. But Lord, now, come on, I, I still do something, you know, every day to make you go, okay, I'm grateful I saved you. I'm grateful you're my child, right? I mean, I make you happy. I, I, you know, I'm good enough so that you're grateful, right? You're not doubting and going, why did I save you? You're so sinful and you're such a mess and why are you in my kingdom of all people, right? You, I, I'm doing something to make you happy for this, right? We're just like James Ryan, 50 years later, still saying, clearly I've been good enough to, to merit the cost that those men gave. And the answer is no. No matter how good of a man he was, he never could have somehow justified the cost that these men gave. Even if he went on to become the greatest person that ever lived, no way. And we could never do the same thing. So if I'm suggesting that this Pharisee has no hope in looking to his own goodness, yet he is a good, righteous, moral man, then we have no hope, right? I mean, we have no hope of, of 
feeling justified in that way. Is that right? Let's see what the tax collector shows us. What does his life show us? Like I said, the Pharisee painted a picture of two very different, or excuse me, Jesus painted a picture of two very different people in this parable. Just as, for just as much as this Pharisee was looked up to and admired in this culture, this, this tax collector was looked down upon. He was the, the bottom tier of society. And it was partly because the tax collectors worked for the, the occupying Romans. I mean, think about it, you know, in the colonial days as the revolution was starting, if there was a, a loyalist tax collector working for the British, I mean, obviously the other colonists would have thought, you're the enemy, you're the oppressors who are, you know, charging these terrible taxes on us and these people we want to break away from. It was kind of the same way for the Jews looking upon this tax collector. But even more, tax collectors almost across the board were, you can assume, not all of them, but most of them were very crooked men. And it was almost as if the Romans encouraged this. They would simply say, okay, in this district, they would just say in different districts, this is the amount of money that should be brought in from this district. So go out, collect that money. We don't care how. We're not even going to watch you in terms of if you do this well. Just go collect that money, and we're not going to pay you either. So if you want to be have any money for your family, just take some off the top from what you collect. So there was really no accountability. These men, you know, almost didn't have a choice but to take this money for themselves. And all the people knew that. They knew that here's $100 to the tax collector, but that tax collector was going to take 25 or 50 of it, put it in his own pocket, and never be punished for doing that. So we can see why, to a degree, this tax collector prayed the way he did. He didn't belong in a temple. It's a holy place, and he's anything but holy. So let's look at his prayer. It says, standing far off. While the Pharisee went into the inner court of the temple to pray, this tax collector stood far away because he didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to be heard. Verse 13 tells us he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven because he knew how unworthy he was to even approach God. It took all the courage he had to even mutter this prayer to him he knew he had no right to stand before this God. He brought nothing which he could say, God, listen to my prayer. We read that he beat his breast. And the original listeners would have understood this is a sign of brokenness, of humility, of contrition, of unlike, you know, kind of a sign of bravado like it might be in our culture today. So listen to an, a couple other passages from Scripture where the author has a similar understanding of his own brokenness, his un, own unworthiness before God. Ezra 9, 6, Ezra writes, Oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Or in Psalm 51, David, after he was confronted with his sin for Bathsheba, he said, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O Lord. And finally, Peter in Luke 5, 8, when he is humbled, He writes, uh, it says this, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is the kind of understanding that this tax collector had of himself. Further, he refers to himself as the sinner. Uses the definite article, the, as though to say, I am the sinner. I don't care about any other sinners in the world. I know before you though, God, I am a sinner. 
if you're a fan of World War II history, uh, per perhaps you've heard the name Adolf Eichmann. He was one of the principal architects of the Jewish Holocaust. And after the Civil War, he, excuse me, after World War II, I like history a lot, and I guess I've read too much different history, getting it confused. After World War II, he fled to Central America under, assume, under, under an assumed name, yet years later was tracked down by kind of the Israeli version of the CIA and was flown back to Israel and, and put on trial uh, after this covert operation to, to capture him. And he was put on trial in a, before the television cameras of the world, really, and which was what was to become an international spectacle. So as he was put on trial for the crimes that uh, obviously he committed in the Holocaust. One of those who was brought forward to testify against him was a man named Yehiel Denur, who was a concentration camp survivor who told the story of his time at Auschwitz 18 years earlier. And as Denier uh, entered the courtroom to testify for the first time uh, against Eichmann, when he was first brought in, he saw Eichmann for the first time. It had been 18 years uh, since he had had any experience with this man. He hadn't seen him since his time in Auschwitz. And as he saw him, if you, you can go read about this and read news reports, it says immediately, he stopped, and as he saw him, he began to weep uncontrollably. Denur actually fainted and collapsed in a heap on the floor of the courtroom. He was later interviewed by Mike Wallace, the well-known TV journalist. And Wallace asked him why he responded that way. Why was he so overcome with grief when he saw this obviously wicked man and this man who had devastated his life and the life of his people? Listen to what Denur said. He, he told him that he realized at this moment that Eichmann was not some larger-than-life, godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. Rather, he realized in this moment when he first saw him that he was an ordinary man. And then he said this. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he is. That's crazy. Most of us would say, Yes, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm broken, but I'm nothing like someone who would be the architect of the Holocaust and murder millions of people. But I think Denur had an understanding of himself like this tax collector, that before God, it's really no different. We are all sinners. We are all have fallen short of his perfection. That's why he can say about himself, I am the sinner. So what does Jesus say about his understanding of himself? What does he say about the tax collector's understanding? Well, as we conclude, let's look at verse 14. It shows us the verdict. It shows us kind of what Jesus has to say about all this. As I said, Jesus pronounces his verdict, if you will, in verse 14. It says, if each man has gone to trial before Jesus, and the Pharisee brings as his defense his own good works, his own, his own spotless moral record as his defense, but the tax collector brings nothing, he has no evidence. He has no defense attorney. He simply pleads guilty. He says nothing other than, God, be merciful to me. And amazingly, Jesus tells us in verse 14 that the tax collector went home justified, not the Pharisee. To say that that verdict is shocking to the people who first heard Jesus tell, tell this parable, that would be an understatement. This is unthinkable to them. They would have been absolutely stunned. To say that the tax collector is justified while the Pharisee isn't 
And that's like saying like a pimp, excuse me, a pimp prayed and received salvation while an elder prayed and his prayer wasn't accepted. Well, there's one other thing we just briefly need to point out about this passage that I think is just so remarkable. Notice the assumptions that this Pharisee makes about the tax collector. Verse 11, he says, thank you that I'm not like all these other sinners he lists, or even like this tax collector. When I mean, yeah, maybe he can assume because he's a tax collector, he's probably a sinful man, but he doesn't know that. He assumes it. And further, why does he compare himself to this tax collector and to all these other sinners he lists? Well, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer explains it well. He says this, self-justification and judging others go together. It's justification by grace and serving others go together. Let me read that one more time. Self-justification and judging others go, to, go together as justification by grace and serving others go together. You see, if we believe the only way we can be justified is to justify ourselves, then we're going to be constantly comparing ourselves to others. We're going to be constantly saying, yes, I'm better than that person. Oh, I'm not quite as good as that person. I need to work on things. Or, okay, I'm better than that person. Yes, I'm better than that person. To, to feel better about ourselves. Think, okay, I'm good. Yeah, I know I'm doing better than him. I must be good in God's eyes. And so we're constantly going to be judging others and looking down at people. But the opposite is also true. If we know we can't be justified in and of ourselves, and we must trust in the mercy of another to be justified, as this tax collector did, we won't feel the need to compare ourselves to other people. Instead, we can love them and we can serve them. We can say, hey, I'm broken and all of us are broken. I don't need to compare, but... I know before God I'm accepted. Therefore, I can love you. I don't need to worry about how do I compare to you. But I think as Christians, we struggle with this. We often fail to understand the message that is at the very core of the gospel, that we can't be justified, that grace alone can justify us. And so we struggle with comparing ourselves. Even if we're not doing it outwardly, inwardly, we're constantly stacking ourselves up to other people and going, Am I as good as that person? Or am I better? Because we don't trust that God justifies us alone. I want to tell one last uh, amazing story that I came across and, as we conclude. Evan O'Neill Kane was a doctor uh, from Pennsylvania who practiced medicine during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And in 1921, at the age of 60, he checked himself into a hospital in Pennsylvania to have his appendix removed. And everything happened as expected. He was registered at the hospital. He had the surgery, and he was released to go home the very next day after his surgery. It was a successful surgery. Excuse me, a successful surgery. His recovery recovery went smoothly, and he was back to normal the very next day. However, there's one interesting fact about this surgery. The surgeon, and the, the interesting thing about this surgeon, was that it was Dr. Kane himself. You see, he was a big advocate of localized anesthetic. Yet in this day and across the board, generalized anesthetic was what was almost always used in not just big surgeries, but even more minor surgeries like an an appendectomy. But he believed, he was one of the few people that believed for this kind of surgery, for a more minor surgery like this, localized anesthetic should be used. It is safer. It doesn't have the same risk of putting someone completely under and dealing with, you know, all the heart issues that could come with that. 
So in order to show that localized anesthetic was actually much better to be used in this situa situation, he wanted to prove it. So he decided to, quote unquote, use himself as a guinea pig. So he administered the localized anesthetic. Yeah, he obviously had other people there watching. And with the help of mirrors, he removed his own appendix. He knew if he wanted to prove this is safe, then he would have to show, look, if, if it's safe, I'll do it to myself to prove it. He knew in order to people to, to trust him, that was the only way he could do it. And I'm sitting here telling us this morning that we can't justify ourselves, that we'd have to be perfect, and that's simply impossible. And I know we're tempted to say, well, what other hope do I have? How else can I know that I'm in a good standing with the creator of the universe? Well, like Dr. Cain, we have a Savior who has done it for us. You see, it'd be one thing if God said, well, there was some person in some point in history, just trust me, he's taking care of it for you. Just believe me, I won't really go into all the details. I mean, you can't know all about it, but just trust me. But no, even more, God is saying, I have done this. You can trust me because I did it to myself. My very own son went and lived a perfect life, died a perfect death. So trust me, I have done it for you. I have been perfect. I have done what you could never do. Because I've done it, you can trust me. Because not only am I the judge who says this is what you have to do, but only I have satisfied that requirement myself. Because of that, I am trustworthy. And nothing else could be that trustworthy. He lived a perfect life, and we have no option but to trust him that he's done something we could never do. So it leaves us with the question, do we trust him? Do we trust him that our standing before God is good and perfect and unchangeable because of what he has done? Who are we trusting in? If you're trusting in yourself like this Pharisee, you probably are hating what it feels like. You're running yourself ragged, saying, oh, if I can be a better parent, if I can be a better employee, if I can be a better church member, you know, I know I was saved by grace, but if I can do those things, then I'll feel good about my standing. If I can just kick this sin, or if I can just, you know, have these accomplishments behind me, then I will feel good. And you're running yourself ragged. You're worn out recognizing, am I ever going to feel good enough? And I'm telling you, you won't. Because we're sinners. And we're never going to be able to do it good enough in our own eyes. And even more, we're never going to be able to do it good enough in God's eyes. Because the standard is perfection. So quit running yourself rag ragged. Trust that God has done it for us. Rest in that gift He's given us. When we trust in that mercy, it gives us such confidence, such peace. No matter what we're going through, no matter what trials, what uncertainties, what fears, we can come to Him saying, God, i got no right to pray to You about this. I have no right to ask for Your help in this. But because Jesus has paid for my sins, because He has covered me, I have every right to come before Your throne and ask for mercy. And He longs to give us that mercy. He longs to hear us say, i got no right to be here, but I know because Jesus has covered me, I have every right. And He longs for us to come to Him in that standing. So do that. Whatever you're going through, whatever fears, whatever uncertainties you're facing, I know Naomi certainly is in moving to another state, taking care of this child. In those kind of uncertainties, whatever you're facing, health, 
the economic downturn like we're in, Jesus, He is listening. He is there for you because He has justified you through His Son if your trust is, is, is in Him. It's offensive to Him to keep thinking, no, I've got to get my act together. Then, then you'll accept me. No, that, that spits on the face of what He's done through Jesus. So accept that work that He has done that for you and live in the grace and the peace and the joy that it gives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have provided a way to make us perfect and holy in Your sight, a way we could never get on our own. Lord, I pray You would give us the ability to trust in that, even though everything in our hearts wants to say, no, I've done it. I've earned it myself. Lord, convict us that we could never do that, that You and You alone can give us that standing. Lord, if anyone doesn't understand that, put it upon their hearts to think through this, to talk to someone, even today, that they might. And Lord, for many of us like myself who do get this, but who, like me, I know, struggle desperately and every day to find our, the peace, the joy that comes through, from this. I know so often, Lord, when I ask You for things, when I kind of wonder how I'm doing, I think of my own performance instead of the fact that Jesus has done it all for me. Give me the joy. Give me the peace that I can have from that. And help all of us to come before You boldly asking for Your mercy, knowing You long to give it because You see us as no different than Your Son. Lord, we pray these things in Your name. Amen.